Thank you, Trey. Well, we resume our story this week in God's Word in John chapter 20. Um, You'll remember that where we left off, Jesus had appeared to Mary and had instructed her to go to the brothers uh, and tell them that he had risen and that he was ascending to the Father, and, and Mary went. And we find the disciples today, having received her message, um, in a state of fear and confusion and doubt. They disbelieved her, and they were afraid. They were afraid because they were afraid that what happened to Jesus would also happen to them. Uh, that they, as well, might be persecuted, arrested, tried, and put to death. So they were very afraid. But didn't they remember the scriptures? You remember in our study of John chapter 16 where Jesus said, in a little while you'll no longer see me, but in a little while you will see me. Jesus was telling them, I'm I'm going away, and, and yes, you can't come with me, you can't come to this place, and the Son of Man must be delivered up, but I'm coming back to you. You'll have sorrow now, but you'll see me again. They're terrified, and they're afraid, and they're confused. Uh, But when Jesus appears to him, to all of them, and as Jesus appears to us, his resurrection brings them and us peace, and it brings us purpose, and it brings us to a place of belief so that we will have life in his name. Well, let's see what this looks like for the disciples and for us. What is this peace that Jesus brings? Firstly, let's let's look at how he appears. He just kind of shows up in the middle of the room. Uh, he wasn't hiding in the closet, you know, jumps out and say, hey, it's me, you know, gotcha. You know, he, he, he just appears. We don't know how, we don't know the mechanism by which he shows up, but he, he shows up in the middle of their fear and their doubt and their confusion. Uh, Luke, Luke reveals the disciples were terrified. They were afraid because they, they thought they'd seen a ghost. Um, but Jesus comes to them. What does he say to them? Notice what he doesn't say to them. Um, If you you had a friend who you thought was loyal to you, um, who had deserted you and denied you, you what would you say to them? Notice what Jesus doesn't say to them. He doesn't ridicule them. He doesn't say, really, guys? I mean, seriously. Um, I told you about what was going to happen, and you ran. He doesn't cast them out. He doesn't, he doesn't say to them, you guys are failures. You know, I'm done with you. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't say, you know, you left me, so I'm going to abandon you for all eternity. No, Jesus pronounces peace to them. He says, peace. Peace be with you. Three times he says this. Peace be with you. Uh, verse 19. Peace be with you. Verse 21. Peace unto you as he's talking to Thomas and the the rest of the group later on in this passage. What is this peace for? It's peace for that moment. Uh, They're terrified. They don't know what's going on. So they need reassurance that everything's okay, that it really is Jesus and not just some ghost. He's saying, look, guys, I'm here in the flesh. It really is me. I'm the one who you walked with, who walked with you for three years. I'm the one who died and yes rose again it's it's me notice how gracious he is to them in verse 20 
He shows them his hands. He shows them his side. Luke uh, reveals that Jesus actually said, do you have anything to eat? You know, he's, he's so kind to them. He's so tender with them in their fear and their doubt and their confusion. He meets them right where they are. He even asks for something to eat to prove that he is the one. Today, he gives us something to eat to encourage us that he is with us as well. He so patiently comes to them in their confusion. Today, I don't know where all of us are, but you may be in a place of confusion about how Jesus is working in your life, about what he's up to. Jesus will not condemn you. He will not crush you. If you even feel like, as Isaiah says, if you feel like you're a dimly burning wick, if you've come in here today struggling and barely able to make it, Jesus says, I'm not going to crush you. I am with you, and I will fan your faith into flame, and I will carry you. And Jesus is carrying his disciples here. Well, this is peace for the moment, but it's also peace with God. The hostility is over. Now, Jesus pronounces a really true, lasting peace. As he took our place on the cross on our behalf, Romans 5.1 reminds us that we have peace with God now, that we are reconciled, that we have access into his grace in which we don't, we don't cower in fear of judgment now. We have access into this grace in which we stand. Go and, go and read Romans 5, 1 and 2, um, and, and, and see later today maybe about what that peace with God looks like there. Um, peace with God in which we stand, in which we rejoice. Because Jesus has paid the price and taken our punishment, we, we don't have to share in that. It's over. Uh, now God calls us his friends. Uh, we are at peace with God. We are reconciled to him. Christ has taken our punishment. On April 17th of this year, 2014, in Iran, there was a murderer named Bilal. Some of you may have seen this story in the news. But this murderer um, was to be executed, and the family of the victim was actually invited to participate in this execution. And as the rope was put around Bilal's neck, and as the family was invited to start the mechanism that would actually lead to his death, the mother of the victim pulls the rope off of this man's neck, off of Bilal's neck, and the mother of the murderer and the mother of the victim hug, and she says, I forgive you to that man. And they, the families were reconciled in that moment. It's a powerful moment. Now, justice may still need to be served in Bilal's case, but in our case, justice is served. We were the ones who deserved to be up on the scaffold, as it were. Uh, and Christ comes up, in a sense, and puts the rope around his neck and says, I'm, I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that so that you can go free and so that you can be reconciled to me. That peace that Christ pronounces is peace with God, but it's also an all-encompassing peace of heart. Remember in Philippians where it says to us, Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and prayer present your request to God and what? The peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
this is, uh, this is the sense when Christ pronounces this peace to them that everything is going to be okay. Because Jesus has triumphed over the grave and over death and over hell. Can he not deal with the circumstances of the disciples' life here? Can he not handle their fear? Can he not handle their situation? Because of Christ's death, because he's overcome the grave, all will be well. Well, what about for us? Do we know that peace with God? Do we come before him on Sunday morning rejoicing to be in his presence? Do we walk with him throughout the week, um, enjoying fellowship with him? Or do we continually come before him with the list of things we've done, hoping that he's going to approve of us? I, I feel like so many times I hope hold my good works up in front of Christ and say, approve me. You are approved because Christ has put his works on the scale uh, for you. Uh, and all of that goodness is yours and mine. Now, do we know peace with God? Do we know that God is no longer our enemy and we're no longer his enemy? We don't have to earn his favor. We have peace with the Father. He is our Father. And we stand before him now because of Christ, because of the peace that he accomplishes, we stand before him faultless. Hear that today. Let's let that sink into our souls that we are justified by Christ's blood on our behalf. Well, the disciples' frailty is a window into our frailty. Remember, their world has been turned upside down by the crucifixion. The one that they followed, that they thought would lead them into victory and triumph, is, is gone and, and killed, and they're confused. They're afraid. They're they're overwhelmed by their circumstances. But Jesus, as he says in John 16, has overcome the world. How about us? Are we, are we preoccupied with our world, with our situation, with fear of losing a relationship, maybe? Of maybe not finding a job after graduation or anxiety, constant anxiety over our physical appearance of what we look like. Maybe it's financial fears that keep us awake at night. I don't know what it is for all of us, but we do at times experience great anxiety over our circumstances, um, and it's difficult for us. But Jesus, because of his death and resurrection and his perfect life, is more intimately concerned and connected with all of those situations and powerfully able to to do something about it. He knew this situation, whatever it was, that, that you and I are uh, afraid in before the foundation of the world. Um, there's a great song by Cademan's Call, if you're a Cademan's Call fan. It's called A Table for Two, which I really like, which kind of dates me. But um, it's in 3-4 time, and I like to waltz to it, so um, it's fun. But um, it's called A Table for Two. And Derek Webb, the, the singer-songwriter there, is saying that you knew this day long before you made me out of dirt. And he's going through all this anxiety over this particular situation, and he's saying, you know what? God knew. And you, God's not going to plan the end of the situation without planning the means to get there. So he's with you all the way to the end, and he knows. He cares. And so he pronounces peace on us. But also, if you'll look 
in verse 21, he says it again. He says, peace be to you. As the Father is sending me, I am sending you. It's, it's not just peace for our heart, but it's peace so that we'll know that we have a glorious uh, purpose and that we're equipped for this purpose. Uh, what is that purpose? That just as the Father sent the Lord Jesus, he sends us. So, Jesus is sent on a mission, and we're sent on a mission. This glorious purpose we have now to participate in spreading the gospel wherever we are, strategically placed. Just as the Father and the Son and the Spirit got together from all eternity and decided how how we were to be brought back to Him into right relationship with Him. The Father said to Jesus, Jesus, I want you to go get my sheep. I want you to go get those people and bring them back. And Jesus does that. And now Jesus invites us to go just as he went. But it's kind of scary, isn't it, um, to think about as the Father sent Jesus, so he sends us. How was Jesus sent? Remember Philippians chapter 2 where it says, although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but was made himself nothing. So Jesus is hanging out in all eternity with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And they're all together, and they're enjoying themselves. And then he's made like a little baby, as a baby, in, a, in an animal feeding trough. I mean, how low can you go, really? Like, that is, that's pretty low. Um, but he did this for us. He made himself nothing. He came to the least of these to redeem us and to save us. And just in that manner, in like manner, he sends us to let go of ourselves, to get outside of our comfort zones, and to be Jesus' hands and feet for the least of these. For the great, for the small, for the people who we think are undesirable or hard to love. He strategically sends us out as well as he sent these disciples. So I think the application for us is to think about where we've been placed. Where have you been placed? So many times during our days, don't we find ourselves just trying to get through the day, right? Like you're sitting in class, or you're sitting in maybe uh, at work in the cubicle, or at home, and just thinking, how can I get through this thing so that I can get to the next moment of my day, or I can get to the weekend? And we miss the opportunity that Christ puts in front of us to be salt and light and a blessing to the people that he's strategically put us around, even if that's a dark and nasty mess. The Lord in his wisdom and grace has put you there with whoever that is in your life. Uh, What if we, instead of looking at those moments as mundane, thought of them as a strategic opportunity where God has placed us to be a part of that great kingdom work of reconciling all things to himself? by sharing the gospel, by sharing that peace of heart that Jesus has brought us, in whatever way, patiently, with words that are kind and gentle and and, uh, appropriate, but with words. Just as the Father sent Jesus, he also sends us with the message of the gospel. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. There's There's a lot of debate about what this means here, but really... What's going on here is symbolic when he says, 
receive the Holy Spirit is symbolic of what's going to happen at Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit is poured out with great power on them, and they go out uh, into to all the world, this is a prefiguring or a foreshadowing, if you will, of, of that time, of that, that event. So he says, receive the Holy Spirit. In verse 23, he says, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, then they are forgiven. If you withhold sins from any, they are withheld. This is also a, a difficult verse for us. What it does not mean is that we, in and of ourselves, can forgive sins. We can't do that. The Pharisees were right earlier in, in, in John where they say only God can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. But as we go and we bear witness to the gospel, we can say to people, as they trust in Christ and repent of their sin and look to him in faith, we can say, if, you, if this is true of you, your sins are forgiven. We can assure people of God's forgiveness if they repent and believe. If they don't repent and believe, if we don't repent and believe, then there is no forgiveness. So we can declare what is true from God's word, but we can't in and of ourselves forgive sins, if that makes sense. Well, there's a glorious purpose in evangelism. There's a peace that God gives us for that purpose, and he also leads us to believe um, we are so frail, aren't we? Uh, we are so prone to skepticism. We live in an age of skepticism. It was revealed in uh, a Barna um, poll, uh, which is, a, a, I think, a Christian polling agency, that the number of people who do not believe that the Scriptures are the inerrant Word of God that, it's, that the Bible is just some other book, that that number has actually doubled in the last three years from 10% to about 20%. And Thomas himself is indicative of the age that we live in. Look over in verses 25 and 26. Doubting Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. Um, let's look at these verses. So the other disciple told him, we've seen the Lord. And he said to them, unless I see his hands and the marks of his nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I mean, this is a guy who's got a little more than doubts, right? He is disbelieving Thomas. He's angry at God, Thomas. He's, my world has been turned upside down and I, I can't take it, Thomas. Like, he's pretty upset. He has no peace. He's restless. He demands to put his fingers in the nail holes. Um, but how do the disciples respond? They say, we have seen the Lord. And in this, they are responding in a way that is very tender and very kind to Thomas. The way that this comes across is they keep pleading with Thomas. They keep saying to him, Thomas, listen, we've seen Jesus. We, we know you're doubting, but we've seen him. We really have seen him. Thomas is doubting. Thomas is stubborn. Um, but let's not be too hard on Thomas because we at times are just like Thomas. We are skeptical. We are doubting. When our worlds get shaken and dreams get shattered, we, we are just like Thomas. Thomas asks for a sign. Signs 
signs won't ever convince us. If you remember Pharaoh, um, did signs convince him? No. Remember the Pharisees had every chance to believe. They had every chance to see that Jesus was the Christ. And they, what? They were more and more hardened in their hearts. Signs can never save us. Let's, let's remember that. Signs can never save us. Signs can never change our hearts. But signs can bring comfort and reminder and shore up the faith of the believer. That's the function of signs for the Christian. We come sometimes demanding signs, but Jesus comes to us so gently. Notice how he comes gently to Thomas. He doesn't berate him for his demands. Jesus knew. Jesus knew, didn't he? You know, he heard. He wasn't in the room with him, but but he knew. And so he answers Thomas' demands so graciously and so tenderly. He says, put your hand in my side. Place your finger into the marks of the nails. And then he encourages Thomas to believe. He says, don't be disbelieving, but believe. Well, the Lord is gracious to us, and he stoops down to us. We sometimes ask for a sign, but he's given us signs, hasn't he? I mean, look around you. Look at the diverse people around you in the church who have had lives changed and transformed by the gospel. That's a sign, isn't it? Sunday morning, when you gather together, when we come out of the busyness and the mess of our week and step into the sanctuary of God, that's a sign. The Lord's Supper is a sign that He's with us. Baptism, when you're baptized, God places His stamp on you and says, you're mine. But the ultimate sign is His Word. The ultimate sign is His Word. He says to Thomas here, blessed are those who have not seen and believed. You've believed and seen, but blessed are those who have not seen and believed. Thomas, I know that you've seen and believed, but those who later on will hear my word and believe, those are the ones who are blessed. In verse 30, we see that this was the whole reason why John is writing this book. That Thomas's confession my Lord and my God, this great crescendo to which John had been driving is the reason that John was writing the whole book. Think back. Think back to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Think back to John 3.16. I mean, here's the Gospel. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. Um, I don't know what you're struggling with today, but maybe you're lost um, in some way or confused, doubting, hurting. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father but through me. These things were written verse 30, so that you may believe, verse 31. And in believing in Him, have life in His name. Well, lastly, what does this life look like? What does this life look like? This life looks like abundant life now uh, and eternal life to come. That abundant life now means that we are His children. That as you look around this room and you say, the peace of Christ 
be with you, that you are part of a family, part of the ultimate family of God, that you have all of the privileges of the sons and daughters of a king. And you have the ultimate father who always, 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 even when it's painful, and even when it doesn't make sense, always does what is best for his children. More than that, and I'm indebted to James Boyce for this particular section, more than that, we have satisfaction for our souls. There's a deep longing in our hearts. And oftentimes, we long for things in this life that are not satisfied. Difficulties of whatever kind. And Jesus says to us that I am the bread of life and he who comes to me will never be hungry. Write this verse down if you're taking notes. It's meant a lot to me this morning and this week. God says to Isaiah through Isaiah in Isaiah 55, why spend money on that which is not bread and labor for that which is, does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and delight yourself in the richest of fare. Whatever that longing is that goes unmet in this life, Jesus promises to be big enough to deal with any circumstance and to be more than you could ever desire and to fill you up so that as you look out at the things of this life, they'll grow strangely dim to you. So he promises abundant life now and eternal life to come rather than eternal death. Um, for those of us who don't know the Lord Jesus, there is not eternal life. There is not hope. There is fear of death because there is eternal perishing without the Lord Jesus. But for the Christian, for the believer, we have great hope and need not fear death because on the other side there's life eternal with the Father and the Lord Jesus who's waiting for us to throw a party for us at the wedding feast of the Lamb. One, one illustration that's really helped me is from the book Pilgrim's Progress, a book I've never really read, but I read this part and I like it. Um, Christian and hopeful, two characters in the book, are getting ready to cross the river, right? The river of death, which represents death, um, to go to the celestial city, which represents heaven. And they're crossing the water together. And Christian begins to sink, and he cries out to Hopeful, and he says, I sink deep in the waters. The billows go over my head. The waves go over me. But Hopeful says to him, Be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom, and it is good. For the Christian, the bottom is good. For the believer, home is just on the other side. We are but a moment away at any given moment in our life from eternity where we will have joy and life forevermore. I think that helps us when we get so caught up with the trivia of this world to know that our home in a very short time uh, is elsewhere and then we'll be there. We'll be uh, the bride presented to the groom um, and enjoy the Lord for all of eternity. What does eternity look like? Let's just turn with me, if you will, and I'm going to close by reading Revelation chapter 21 as we look into that picture, that picture that John is given in this great vision 
of the glorious um, the glorious picture of eternity. Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Jesus' resurrection brings us eternal life and abundant life now. It brings us a glorious purpose, and it, it brings us peace. Peace for this week, peace of heart. Let's pray and thank the Lord for this glorious resurrection. Heavenly Father, we pause before you this wonderful passage. We thank you that you shore us up, that you see how weak and feeble we are, how we look around us at our circumstances as the disciples did and wonder what's to become of us. Lord, we know what's to become of us. Would you let that knowledge sink deep down that because you have conquered the grave, we can rest in that and in that have life forevermore. We ask these things in the strong name of your Son. Amen. As we come to a time of